Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community, I'm Sina Bazilahiki, and today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's conversation with Canyon Ryan of United Tenants about the Albany Court's reaction to good uh, rejection of good cause eviction law. Then Bria Barthel reports on the period pantries that are popping up around the capital region with free menstrual products. Later on, we hear from WMHT about the upcoming screening of Storming Caesar's Palace at the Sanctuary on March 8th. That's next Wednesday. After that, Dulcinea Diggs talks child development, small business, and goals with Walter King of Little Kings and Queens Fun Place. Finally, Taina Asili talks with Janita Benali about punk rock for hope and healing for this week's Rhythm of Rebellion interview. But first, here are the headlines. Cannabis regulators announced yesterday that they will dole out 300 retail shop licenses to applicants uh, impacted by past marijuana convictions, up from their original plan to give just 150 in the first round. The Times Union reports that a new transit line, electric bikes, and an expansion into the city of Amsterdam and Warren County are among the many changes for the capital district. The CDTA will add a third bus rapid transit line this fall. The purple line will run along Washington and Western Avenues and connect downtown Albany to Crossgates Mall and the university at Albany campuses. Establishing new regional mobility hubs is a top priority. New York has announced that a second emergency benefit through the Home Energy Assistance Program is now available for eligible New Yorkers in danger of running out of heating, fuel, or having their utility service shut off. The city of Troy has enough money available to replace lead water pipe service lines in 300 to 350 homes during the next year after the city council moved $1.6 million in Federal American Rescue Plan Act funds, plus an additional $1 million in city water funds reserved to supplement the $516,565 in state funds for a total of $3.1 million. Willie Dean, a former star basketball player at Schenectady High School who went to play for major colleges and then professionally overseas, is returning to the city as its park director. The Schenectady Police Department announced on Friday that they are treating the death of 14-year-old Samantha Humphrey as a homicide investigation after her body was pulled from the Mohawk River on February 22nd after being missing for several months. And that's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, join us. And you can go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us 518-272-2390. And to start today's program, the state's mid-level appeals court has affirmed a lower court ruling overturning the city of Albany's good cause eviction law. 
that established conditions to restrict when landlords could remove tenants and how they can raise rents. The court said that it was up to the state legislator to make laws on such issues. Mark Dunley reports. We're joined by Canyon Ryan, who is the executive director of United Tenants of Albany. And earlier this week, the uh, appellate division, which is the mid-level court uh, in the state's uh, legal system, uh, unfortunately um, affirmed the lower court decision that the good cause eviction law that the city of Albany had enacted was in fact in violation of uh, state law. So, so Canyon, what's um, what's the implications of this decision? Uh, thank you for having me on, Mark. Um, so the implications are pretty simple. Uh, this law, or rather this ruling, doesn't say that good cause is illegal. Um, it doesn't say that good cause is rent control. It doesn't conflict with anything other than the issue of preemption, which is um, the state has to make this decision. Municipalities aren't allowed to go in and change the rulings around eviction. So now it's very clear to everybody that it's time for the state to play their part they had told us, pass it at the municipal level. This is a city issue. The courts have said this is not a city issue. This is a state issue. So now we need our representatives to pass good cause with the expectation that it very well could find its way into the budget, meaning by the end of March, early April, we could have statewide good cause. And that's the push right now. Now, Governor Hochul has said that the you know housing, affordable housing is a crisis and is her you know, top issue supposedly in this uh, up year's budget. Has, you know, she said anything about uh, where she stands and willing to push good cause eviction? And, and what's the read you're getting from, you know, the Assembly and Senate leaders on this issue? Yeah, so, you know, she, uh, the governor's uh, perspective is very like elementary economics. We need supply side uh, solutions that will then lower demand because there will be more apartments, not recognizing how luxury um, units are, are often the only ones that are built. And uh, so she's been really avoiding the, uh, the idea, the issue um, or, of even commenting on good cause eviction at the state level or municipal level, um, which is really unfortunate. However, when we held our emergency Zoom with Brian Kavanaugh and Linda Rosenthal, who are their respective Senate and Assembly Housing Committee chairs, they seemed very determined and, and they expected, it appeared, to have good cause in their one house budgets which if that's the case, that can be a huge point to rally around and say, hey, Hochul, you know, we're not going to tell you you can't develop things, but people who are living in, in affordable apartments now, we need them to be able to stay. So maybe it's a concession point, right? Um, so I think that there's a lot of leverage there for both the Senate and the Assembly. Now, it, the one house budget resolutions get adopted by the Senate and the Assembly um, in the upcoming week, so around March of fifth or sixth, we'll know that, and then they have until April 1st to um, negotiate from here. But I also remember there was a report recently, and it was, to me, and I understand that housing is an affordability issue, but it was also surprising just the number of New Yorkers and the high percentages in many counties. You know, the rule of thumb is you're supposed to pay 25, 30% of your housing, uh, of your income towards housing. But in fact, many places, uh, people are paying 50% or more of their income for, for housing. Yeah, I, I think it's one one uh, third of tenants are extremely rent burdened, being 50% or more, and at least half of renters in the state of New York are paying more than 30%, which just includes being rent burdened. And at United Tenants of Albany, the average tenant that we work with has an income that's about 25% of the area median income. 
meaning that for a one bedroom apartment, it would it would be about 70% of their or for a two bedroom apartment for an average two person household, it'd be about 70% of their income, a one bedroom to overcrowd uh, a family into a home, about 60% of their income. So yeah, this affordability issue is huge. And, and it's really unfortunate that the governor is looking towards, you know, uh, developer money to say, hey, can you resolve this for us instead of saying, hey, tenants, what do you need? And uh, that's what we're trying to, to tell her. We need good costs as a start. And I, I remember just doing um, a, a story earlier this week that, uh, you know, housing prices had gone up pretty substantially uh, in the last two years um, due to, to COVID. And that really increased the demand um, for housing, particularly um, buy-in. The, but even though that the housing um, market is beginning to cool off a little bit in terms of demand, um, prices were, were still going up and they're, and they're definitely not going backwards uh, to the level it was previously. How are some of the other you know, cities um, uh, around the state also looking at good cause eviction? I kind of remember maybe, maybe it was Kingston early this year was trying to do something similar. Yep. Kingston, Poughkeepsie, Newburgh, and one other city, <clears throat> um, Beacon, have all passed good cause eviction protections. Kingston as well entered into the ETPA, which which uh, included rent stabilization. They worked to, to lower rents. And again, some activist courts stepped in and said, no, 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 you can't, you can't lower your rents. What are you thinking? You can control the rent, but you can't lower it. Um, so so every every step forward that te- that the tenant movement makes is either struck down by a court or ignored by the you know our political overlords, and that's why it's it's really up to us to make these changes and demands. Now, when the uh, state supreme court, which is lowest court in New York, um, had initially ruled against the Albany good cause eviction law, um, that actually was um, basically the law continued. Uh, and, until such time as the court case was resolved and while it was being appealed. Do you, do we know yet, you know, is the Albany good cause eviction law, you know, now just off the books or is it um, continue until such time as they make a decision whether or not to file an appeal to the court of appeals, which is the top state court? I don't know. It's pretty early and I should check with corp counsel yesterday or, you know, on um, when, the, when the ruling came out, we were really running around trying to, to do damage control, but I really should look into that. So that's a good question. <laughs> now, you know, when I lived in New York City, they said in New York City is controlled what they call FIRE, um, which is the various interest groups. But one of those, of course, is the real estate market uh, and their lobbyists. And, you know, they make a lot of campaign uh, contributions. And so while, you know, liberal uh, legislators, progressive legislators tend to be very supportive of you know tenant rights that's not true tends to be a, a, of the leadership you know what's your assessment in terms of how, you know how strong is the new york state legislature at this point in, in terms of being supportive of tenants rights against the real estate industry i mean we're on, <clears throat> excuse me we're on our fourth year of this campaign right like we really have an opportunity to move it the legislature acts in crisis and this is absolutely a crisis it says that all these cities are essentially stepped on by some court ruling about Albany's local good cause. Um, and, and, and to that point, too, it's not small landlords who are going to be most impacted by good cause, despite all, all of the hubbub around you know all these small landlords. It's big money interests, like you're saying, that are really fighting uh, a tenant's right to age in place or a tenant's right to an affordable rent. You know, the slumlords that brought the case against Albany 
Two of them had over 100 code violations in the last six or seven years. Another one had four landlord tenant police calls at one of his addresses in the last two years. It's not the mom and pops. It, it's the money grubbing, you know, really, really uh, profit driven, profit motive driven, um, you know, not housing providers, but, but uh, you know, in, income leeches, really. Um, now, yeah. we, we've had you on previously to talk about the cause eviction law, but um you want to give us a quick summary for those of you, you know, listeners might not be as familiar with it. Yeah. So uh, Albany's local good cause was no rent increases beyond 5% within reason. So if you could demonstrate, Hey, I put a washer and dryer in the place. I need to raise the rent an extra 50 bucks and that's more than 5%. That's fine. Um, but you couldn't just jack the rent up uh, right now, you know, without good cause, the landlord could quite literally double the rent. It also said that a tenant had the right to age in place. Or, um, you know, they couldn't be evicted for no cause holdover, meaning, you know, the landlord can't just say lease is terminated. Landlord can't say you don't have a lease, you have to leave. They have to have a reason to remove you from your home. That's all good causes. Now, so this is going to be, you know, decided, hopefully, um, one way or the other by the New York State Legislature. Um, you know, kind of assume that, you know, it's, a, it's an issue of where do the Democrats stand, Republicans tend to be opposed, but they also don't have any power now in the state legislature. How, you know, are there, um, how is our locals delegation to the state legislature? How, how are they standing on the issue? Is there anybody particularly opposed among the area Democrats? Yeah, I mean, I would actually say all of them, except Neil Breslin. Neil Breslin's always been a really big supporter of tenants' rights. Um, but Pat Fahey, we can't get her to move, even though her entire constituency is, is the city of Albany now. John McDonald seems to follow her lead. A lot of tenants in Cohoes that we work with who deal with a lot of these no-cause holdover evictions, those small courts, they don't really respect tenants' rights. Good cause would really change a lot of things for their constituencies. And I don't know if it's money interest. I don't know if they don't care to understand. But when we bring tenants, they don't listen. And, and when we talk about it, they, they just nod their heads along and say, you know, we'll look into it. So everybody could use pressure except Neil Breslin, who could really use a pat on the back. Canyon Ryan, Executive Director, United Tennis of Albany, your website? Uh, dot org. Thank you very much. And this has been uh, Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. As Mark mentioned, Canyon Ryan has been on this program before, and we will continue to follow this story. Menstruation is expensive. One of those costs is the cost of products, but a local group is trying to change that by providing period uh, pantries. Bria Barthel gets the scoop. Hi, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And today I have three guests who are going to tell us about an important project for people who menstruate and that is the Capital Region Menstrual Health Project that provides free period items. So with me are... Hi, I'm Annabelle Riesler. I'm a New York State Public Health Corps Fellow with Cornell Cooperative Extension, Albany County. Hi, I'm Bryn Watkins. I am a New York State Public Health Corps Fellow working with Schenectady County. Hi, I'm Claire Jennings. I'm also a New York State Public Health Corps Fellow working with Schenectady County. Claire, Annabelle, and Bryn are all working through Cornell Cooperative Extension. And Bryn and Claire recently started a new project that's grant funded to provide menstrual supplies in Schenectady. And Annabelle joined later to help with Albany. So Bryn, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the project. Yeah, definitely. So this project actually started um, with my work as a public health core fellow. I was working in STI prevention and working with delivering free condoms to community-based organizations. 
And one of the organizations actually said, we've had enough of the condoms, you know, we're all set. What we really need are menstrual products. So Claire and I began thinking about what we could do to solve this issue or at least attempt to address it. And we asked our supervisors if we could take on this project and start applying for grant funding to purchase period products. And they gave us the okay. And then we were awarded a $3,000 grant and we began purchasing period products and distributing them to local community organizations. And then I think maybe two months after that, we got the idea from another person in Ohio named Jen Glazer, who had a period pantry. And that's where we got the idea to start the period pantry here. Now we have four in total, three in Schenectady and one in Albany. And my understanding is that these are like free food pantries where there's a box, I think converted newspaper boxes, where people can just, whoever needs them can go and take free menstrual products. Claire, maybe you can tell us the locations. Yes. In Schenectady, our first box that we placed is at Bethesda House on State Street, which is a homeless shelter. Our second box is at Sikkim on Albany Street in Schenectady which has a food pantry. And then our third box in Schenectady is at the YWCA in the Stockade area. And then our Albany box is on Green Street um, in front of Albany Housing Authority. How did you pick those locations? What was your goal in picking those locations? So we wanted to pick locations where we knew there were high poverty rates. And we also wanted to pick locations that had high foot traffic. And so we know in Schenectady that State Street and Albany Street have high traffic. We placed our other box at the YWCA because that's kind of on the other side of Erie Boulevard in Schenectady. We're in the Stockade District and it is the YWCA. So they do see a lot of people that might use the menstrual products as well. And then Annabelle, you're more involved with the Albany location. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I got involved with the whole program just through knowing Brent and Claire as public health fellows. Um, We had a few meetings throughout the end of last year, beginning of this year. A lot of people and organizations have been reaching out to them from Albany, asking if there was similar projects or initiatives going on in the city of Albany. And at the time, there really wasn't. So that's kind of where I came in, working to incorporate Albany into the total program here. The location that we decided to put our first pantry in Albany actually Two women who work at the Albany Housing Authority's Office for Family Self-Sufficiency, they reached out to us and said that this would be a great location. We would love to house it. It's basically in the works of becoming a total community resource center that's um, open to the public, specifically to people who live in the Albany Housing Authority affordable housing buildings. But the pantry itself is outside and open to anyone. Correct. Yes, it is on the sidewalk, completely self-serve, accessible 24-7. Yes. And I noticed that you said the first Albany pantry. Are there plans in the work to expand in Albany or in Schenectady? Yes, absolutely. I know that there's been talk about the next one being Schenectady, but we are definitely planning on having more in Albany as well. And You've mentioned that you're public health fellows, and yet I first met Annabelle. You had a Cornell Cooperative Extension shirt on. What is the connection between your roles and Cornell Cooperative Extension? So 
We are New York State Public Health Corps Fellows. This is a state-run program, and some fellows throughout the state are housed by their respective counties county health department. There are also fellows at the state health department in Albany, but some counties is a collaboration with Cornell Cooperative Extension. So those counties are housing the fellows as well. And so for Albany County, it's Cornell Cooperative Extension, Schenectady County, um, Cornell Cooperative Extension. There are other counties throughout the state that the county health departments have fellows. Now, did the three of you, or I guess Claire and Bryn, the two of you, originate the grants that got the funding for this? Uh, yes. So we actually applied for grant funding. Our first grant, um, as Bryn said, $3,000. We applied for that through Cornell Cooperative Extension. So that's how we started out. And then our second big grant, which we got in December, which was the United Way Perfect Pitch Grant, we applied for that through Cornell. Um, and they've been just very supportive of us kind of strengthening the foundation of this initiative and then bringing it to Albany County. And are you working on trying to locate future funding or is, is there a sponsor stepping up to help you out? We're always actively looking to find more funding, um, but we are actually the premier partner of the United Way, um, Women United for 2023. So they are providing support to us. Um, through their organization, but yes, always looking for um, additional grant funding. If people wanted to donate, is there an option for that? Bryn? Yeah, so we have an option for both monetary and in-kind donations. So we accept checks mailed to our office in Schenectady that will be at 107 Not Terrace, Schenectady, New York. And then we also have a PayPal on the Cornell Cooperative Extension site for Schenectady County where people can donate directly. And then we also do those in-kind donations. So whether people want to purchase from our Amazon wishlist, which we just have a bunch of different products on there that can be shipped directly to our office, or if people want to make the trip to our Schenectady office and hand deliver products, that is welcomed as well. So we have a bunch of options. And is there anything that I didn't ask that you would like to mention or talk about? Do you have any events planned or activities or anything? Bryn and I will actually be on a panel for the United Way. They're going to be having an International Women's Day panel at the Blake Annex in Albany. If you go to their website, you can register to attend that event. And that's through United Way, you said? Correct. What yeah. is the Blake Annex? I believe that's their main offices in Albany. I was just going to say um, the United Way of the greater capital region. So I believe that's their main office for that. And is there a website where people can get information about this specific project? I would tell people to visit the Cornell Cooperative of Schenectady Counties page. And then under the health and wellness section, they can find our page under Capital Region Menstrual Health. I just wanted to say in terms of like other things I think might be helpful to include is just that. Um, another component that we're working on is education. We did already do a little educational activity with Girls Inc. in Schenectady, and we made these little period kits for them. So we included some pads, um, some how to use a pad information, hand sanitizer, and we let them decorate them and showed them a, a video just about their periods and what they can expect. And I think it was really helpful, too, because the video talked 
about PMS, which I personally don't ever remember learning about. And I think that's an important part of menstrual cycle and should be openly talked about. And we actually passed around some pads and tampons and even a menstrual cup for them to just like feel and like get their hands on just so they know it's like something that's completely natural and nothing to be scared of. So I think that's like another big part of our messaging is to decrease the stigma. Like a lot of people will be like, you know, why are these boxes just out in the open? Why is there a uterus on the box? Why is it so flashy? But it's like, that's the whole point, right? It's like, we don't want this to be something that people feel like they have to hide. Like, why is everyone still slipping tampons up their sleeves? You know, it's a natural bodily function and we should be able to openly talk about it. Well, thank you for openly talking about it for our listeners. Again, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, talking with Claire Jennings and Bryn Watkins from Cornell Cooperative Extension Schenectady and Annabelle Riesler from Cornell Cooperative Extension Albany. Thank you. And thank you for the wonderful work that you're doing to reduce period poverty. Thank you. Thank Thank you for having us. Thanks to Bria Barthel for that segment. And there's a link to the Cornell Cooperative Extension site with this story on our website, mediasanctuary.org. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey, and you are listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, also streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. Storming Caesar's Palace is about Ruby Duncan, who, after losing her job as a hotel worker in Las Vegas, joined a welfare rights group of mothers who defied notions of the welfare queen, that's in quotes, in a fight to guaranteed income, Ruby and other equality activists took on the Nevada mob in organizing a massive protest that shut down Caesar's Palace. Here else is what you need to know. On Wednesday, March 8th, on International Women's Day, the Sanctuary for Independent Media will be screaming Storming Caesar's Palace in partnership with WMHT as part of their Indie Lens pop-up series. And joining me now to tell us more is Mara Drogan, Director of Community Engagement and Education at WMHT. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. What is the Indie Lens pop-up series? Uh, I'm glad you asked that because I definitely wanted to recognize them. So the Indie Lens pop-up series um, is a series of documentary films that is put out by ITVS, which is the production company that presents Independent Lens, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with. It's on PBS. And so they make shorter screening versions of these films available to us every year so that we can host in-person screenings and follow them up with sort of... um, discussion or different kinds of events to kind of, um, you know, share these very powerful documentaries, but then also um, get community engagement around the issues that are presented therein. So uh, we've already screened two films. We did Move Me in October up in Saratoga. And then last month we uh, screened Love in the Time of Fentanyl. We had screenings in Albany and in Saratoga. Um, And the old Chatham Quaker Meeting House also screens all of these films as well. So they screened that one. Following uh, Storming Caesar's Palace in April, we're going to have the film Free Chol Su Lee, 
which is a documentary about a Korean American man who was wrongly imprisoned for murder and the Pan-Asian uh, movement, that uh, justice movement that develops around him to get him liberated from prison. And then finally in May, we'll have a collection of short films called Bridge Builders, and it's five films that are less than 10 minutes um, a piece. So plans for those are still in the works. I don't have dates or venues yet. Um, if anybody wants to host us, get, get in touch, uh, but we'll, we'll have more information on those in the future. So um, this particular screening at Sanctuary for Independent Media, we were very fortunate this year to get a grant from ITBS. So they are supporting um, our local, some of our local screenings. And then our other national partners are Independent Lens, PBS, um, and of course the Corporation for Public Broadcasting that are making this all possible. We're very much looking forward to this film and celebrating the power of women that is at the heart of storming Caesar's Palace. Can you give us an overview? What is the premise of this film? Yeah, so Storming Caesar's Palace, first of all, it's directed by Hazel Gerland Pooler, and it's based on the 2005 book, uh, Storming Caesar's Palace, How Black Mothers Fought Their Own War on Poverty. It was written by Annalise Orlek. And it tells the story of, as the subtitle says, a group of Black mothers who um, they were on welfare living in Las Vegas, Nevada in the 1960s and 70s. And, and they were receiving among the lowest payments of any group, you know, any people in the country. And suddenly in 1971 or 72, they many of them were suddenly stricken from the welfare rolls illegally. And so then they challenged the system and ultimately ended up, uh, you know, winning a victory. Um, a judge did rule that, that that was illegal and that they did have rights to be um, put back on the rolls. Um, so it, it tells that story. It focuses on Ruby Duncan, who is a really just a, a powerhouse, uh, you know, kind of a heroic figure. I think people will be really kind of amazed and impressed um, with what, what she is able to achieve. And it's, uh, I think, really inspiring to see the sort of um, gender, race, and uh, class analysis that these this group of poor, mostly uneducated women are able to offer. You know, it's really inspiring to see they understand what's happening and they can provide an analysis, you know, better than I mean, there's some scholars and some other, you know, experts who are who are kind of talking heads in the film, but the women themselves are the real real experts and they really just break it down, make it clear, you know, um, why this is wrong and and why they need support. But then after their victory, they actually set up their own um, organization. And by then it's Johnson's War on Poverty. And so they are getting some direct funding from the state. And it's really kind of a mutual aid society where you have women who either are on welfare or who have been on welfare in the past working directly to provide services for others in their community. Um, and I, I just think it's a really moving film. It's a really inspiring film, um, really shows you kind of what people can do when they work together, when they support each other, um, when they tell their stories and provide support. Going along with that, uh, we're not just hosting a film screening, but we're also holding a resources fair afterwards. And so we invited a number of local partners um, to come to the sanctuary, you know, participate in the film screening, but then to kind of set up. And so after the film, um, people will have a chance to 
hear from these or local organizations and then connect with them and network with them. So the partners that we have on top um, at the moment are the New York State Poor People's Campaign, uh, the Rensselaer County Department of Social Services, Troy Area United Ministries, which is known as TOWM, uh, Unity House, and YWCA of the Greater Capital Region. I do have a couple other emails that are out, so we may have a few last minute people showing up. But what I really wanted to do, I think that people are going to see this film and feel really inspired. I think you're going to be fired up when you see this film. And you're going to say, what can I do? How can I get involved? Or if I'm somebody who has needs, how do I get those needs taken care of? And so we really wanted to have some of the you know groups and organizations that we have in the area right there. So you can watch the film and then turn around behind you and you know see a table full of information and, and people that you can talk to. Um, if you need help, you can talk to them about getting help. If you're able to offer help, you know, you can uh, talk to them about how you can get involved, either volunteering or donating or, or whatever you have. But it's really an opportunity for us to, you know, both show this powerful film, share this powerful documentary with people, but also really lift up organizations that we have, you know, right here in Troy that are helping people right now, because people still do need help. Um, and so it's really important to, you know, lift up these organizations and connect people with them. So you're not just getting energized by the film and going home, you then exactly. immediately have tools to get involved right there exactly yeah because i think that's what happens with a lot of uh a lot of independence independent lenses films i mean they're all really powerful and i they just you know you, you see them and you think wow this is so important what can i do and you know sometimes maybe you go home and google some things or something but i think it's a lot better if we can that's kind of the point of the indie lens pop-up film screening and, and why itbs is offering you know a little bit of funding to support these events is because they recognize that and they really want to, you know, help uh, local communities, you know, connect people and, and give people next steps, you know. So now you've, you've seen the film, you've learned a little bit, you've been inspired, you know, what can you do next? And so we're just trying to facilitate that a little bit by, by having these partners come in. So it will be International Women's Day. What can women organizers today learn from Ruby Duncan and the other mothers who were involved in organizing? I think that one of the things they can learn is just that a lot of us already know what the problems are and have ideas about what the solutions could be. And maybe we've been told that we're wrong or we don't know enough. We need to study more. We need to, you know, listen to the other so-called experts. But I think we already have experts in our own communities that have identified the problems. And one of the best ways to confront those problems is to really start working together, you know, work together to get involved in your local communities. Um, I think that that's always the first step is to, you know, look at your neighbors, look at your friends, look at your immediate circle and think, you know, who do I know who has something to offer, who has some expertise to offer? Um, because I think especially around issues like this about about class, about race, about gender, you know, there's a lot of knowledge on the ground, and and I think that we can come up with some creative solutions on the local level. Um, you know, if we if we work together, a lot of these things do need to be addressed at the higher level. That's true. So I do think it's important for people to pay attention to kind of what's happening. You know, with local, state, county, um, and and national the national government. There's a lot of policies that you know and practices that get in the way of some of those solutions. So there does need to be some sort of organizing at that level. 
But um, always as a first step, I would say turn to your neighbors and look to your community, you know, to see both um, what kind of help can you offer, what kind of help can you get? Because I think everybody's, you know, has needs, but everybody also has some kind of skill or ability or something that they can offer as well. Mara Drogan, it's been a pleasure, and we're very much looking forward to the screening of Storming Caesar's Palace on March 8th at the Sanctuary in partnership with WMHT. Anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I do want to mention, if you can't make it to the screening, uh, the film will be uh, premiering on Independent Lens on March 20th at 10 p.m., and will also be available to stream on the PBS app. So people can go to um, WMHT.org to check their local listings uh, to get more information about the film. If they want, they can send an email to education at WMHT.org and I can send them whatever information they want. Um, But it is available. We recognize that not everybody can get out to the sanctuary on a Wednesday night, though I hope most people will try to make it. But if not, the film uh, will be available to watch on PBS. And I really would encourage everyone to see it. It's such a great film. I'm so excited about it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Dina. We hope to see you at the Sanctuary on March 8th. If you're able to, to learn more find the, and to find the registration link, you can find that on our website, mediasanctuary.org slash events. Walter King says, Little Kings and Queens Fun Place is the next, quote, Disney World. He spoke with Hudson Mohawk Magazine correspondent Dulcinea Diggs about the challenges of opening a small business how Little Queen, Kings and Queens Fun Place came to fruition, and what, what, what Walter envisions for the center. Hello, this is HM correspondent Dulcinea Diggs for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and today I have the wonderful Walter King. Walter is a business owner and entrepreneur, but most of all, he is feeding the minds of children. Please welcome my guest, Walter. How are you doing today? Good. How's it going, Dulcie? It's going really good. Thanks so much, Rax. And so why don't you tell us how you started and where the business is currently? Yes. Yeah, so I started off with a gaming truck. For those of you that don't know, a gaming truck is pretty much, it's a trailer with video games, um, both inside and outside. What I did with that was I go to people's houses and I host different like events, like birthday parties. Um, we did a few corporate events, summer camp programs, and it's just a space for kids to come, not only kids, but mainly kids to come and um, interact through gaming. Um, I did that for, I'm still doing it, but I'm doing it for going on four years now. And I currently expanded that to a bigger portion, which I'm currently at right now. It's called Little Kings and Queens Fun Place. Mm -hmm. And that is an indoor amusement park. It's pretty, pretty big. It's different. Um, We have a bunch of different attractions in here. We have a trampoline. We have a big, like, three-story soft play area. We have a whole bunch of stuff in here. Like it would be too much for me to name, but my vision for the place is literally like a Disney world type of environment. And hopefully if everything goes well, I have a space big enough to kind of bring my vision to light. Mm, Okay. So do you have an animal attraction? Yeah. So the whole place pretty much is kind of like jungle theme. Mm -hmm. So we have different animals. We have dinosaurs, uh, giraffes, zebras, elephant. We have pretty much every animal you'll see in the jungle in here. And cool part about it is that kids really love is it's all animated. So I have it all off right now. But when the place is on, like all the stuff you see in here moves, it screams, like yells. It's like really, really different. 
Wow. Okay. So I'm curious, how did you implement this all into your space? You know, what was the process like trying to find the right theme and basically the right programs to bring to your space? Yeah. So I give a lot of the credit to my mom. She's really, really detail oriented when it comes to um, decorating and things of that nature. But first thing first, we came up with the theme. The name of the business is Kings and Queens. So we kind of went with like a jungle theme, like kind of like King of the Jungle. I don't know why we went with that. But as far as the process goes, it was a lot because a lot of this stuff, you know, we're not getting from America. So we're communicating with a lot of people in China. We're communicating with a lot of people in Europe. And most of the time they don't really speak English. So we're here going back and forth about what exactly we're looking for, pricing, shipping costs. And um, it can it can sometimes be a lot with the different time zones and everything, um, just trying to get everything situated. Okay, so why did you invest into a business that involves children? So my mom's been in childcare business for 30 years. She owned a daycare um, for 25 years that was an in-home daycare. So it was one of those daycares where it's in someone's house. Fast forward to about 2018, right before COVID, we started growing the business and my mom was like how she always wanted a daycare center and the whole nine so she finally got her hands on a commercial space out in Peekskill, big huge daycare center and um as i was coming up at that time just to give you a background i was a i was a division one basketball player so at the time my mom's business is expanding i'm playing basketball but i always knew that i had to come up with a way to kind of expand the foundation my mom created if that makes sense mm -hmm. so here i am just thinking outside the box i always was like if you ask anyone that knows me since i was younger i was always like like the box is here and like i'm all the way out here so uh yeah i just was thinking of creative ways to expand my mom's business and that's why i kind of went with the childcare business but i also implemented my game truck business into childcare. if that makes sense 100 percent. okay so I noticed you have virtual reality in your packages. Now, I'm curious, with the pros and the cons of virtual reality, how did you decide to, you know, just keep it? Because I know you've probably seen the recent stories about kids and virtual reality. I don't know if you have, but there's been some unfortunate situations with virtual reality and um, kids' experience with them. and. You know, I'm just trying to figure out how you were able to decipher between keeping it and, you know, all the measures that come with it. I noticed you have a waiver section, too. So that's I tell everyone all the time, like the waiver is in place. Um, it doesn't necessarily protect me. Like if someone was to come in here and try to sue me, if, if something was to happen, God forbid. But the waiver is in place just to let people know, like, this is what's here. This is what's potentially can happen and just making you aware of it in a nutshell but to answer your question about the virtual reality so v virtual reality i'm still learning about it i'm not like a guru about it or anything but it's like everything else it needs monitoring and it needs regulating for kids it's no different than them playing a video game that's rated r and they see blood and all, di all different types of uh, violence and stuff like that yeah. the good thing about our virtual reality here is that my staff controls it so we control what the kids see and we control what ride they get on if that makes sense there are we have thousands of virtual reality games so there are games where you'll see blood and you'll see violence but we control it so we kind of limit uh the kid based on age of what they're actually seeing but 
in my opinion, virtual reality is the new, it's it's the future. Like it's like their new roller coasters. Like the kids, like the way the virtual reality machines um like react to certain things. It's almost like it's like a real life, like real time roller coaster. So I think it's um I think it's really cool. And I do love it for my business because not a lot of places um offer it. I'm curious, you noted that, you know, you started the business through a gaming truck. And of course, part of it was originated through your mother's original business, and they were able to implement it together. Now, what made you make the switch from gaming truck to event space? It was more of a financial move uh, with the gaming truck. There's but so many parties I can do in a day. There's a cap on it. There's but so many kids I can reach on the gaming truck. And it's kind of like a saturated market with the gaming truck. I kind of had the Westchester area like monopolized for the most part, but there is a lot of competition. Like if you look up gaming truck near me, you'll probably find five or six companies. Now, if you look up what I have now at the fun place, you're you're not finding it. My my competition is honestly it probably is Chuck E. Cheese and Dave and Buster's and the other place the other place in the Palisades Mall. Um forgot I forgot its name, but there's not much Billy people- Bees. Billy Bees, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, so there's not much people um, doing what I'm doing. My competition, I, I don't have no competition. I set the tone and I, I dictate the market with the whole fun place. So uh, the reason for the switch, as I was saying, basically is there was about so many parties I can do on the gaming trucks, about so much money I can make just before the truck starts breaking down. You know, it's just it's just hard to scale that kind of business. Now, something that I was working towards was building gaming trucks and then selling them to people that kind of want to be their own boss and get into the business. That That's a whole nother conversation. But as far as me being the one going to your house, doing your nephew or your son's party, I mean, that was there. I've reached the ceiling for that type of business. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think there is there is market for what you just mentioned, helping people start their own gaming trucks. It's kind of like helping someone start their own CDL business or get their CDL license. That is definitely a good idea. And you should definitely ponder upon that a little more. <laughs> now, your business seems to be booming all over Westchester. So where do you see it within the next three years? I know you want to go to universal type status, but if you could dictate what happens in the next three years, how would you, how would you make that vision come true? So the goal is, I don't really think right now, I think three to five years from now. So right now, um, on air live, just being completely transparent with you, the business is probably just about breaking even. I mean, it does enough for when I say breaking even, that's after all expenses, after me paying myself, it's just about breaking even. Um, I don't think about right now. I'm thinking three to five years from now. So the goal is to have these different fun places in Connecticut, Jersey, um, Florida, California. Like that's where my mind is when it comes to um, where I want the business to go. So I want these fun places all over the nation, literally same Dave and Buster module that we saw when we were younger. That's exactly what I want for the fun place. When I say that out loud, it kind of, it gives me the chills a little bit. Because, you know, that's, that's a pretty big reach. Um, you know, you're talking investors, you're talking like that's a, you, that's a big scale. And those are big shoes that, you know, I have to fulfill. But 
that's what I envision for the fun place. I don't want this just for Westchester. I want this for Connecticut. I want this for every place I just named. I want this all across the nation. And I want kids to be able to experience what I brought here to Westchester everywhere. That was an interview by Dulcinea Diggs. And to learn more about Little Kings and Queens Fun Place, that website is lkqfunplace.com. The Rhythm of Rebellion is a series of interviews by Diana Seeley with performing artists who are leading social change across genres and exploring the strategies they are using in their art to bring justice and healing to their communities and our world. This week, Taina speaks with Janita Benali. You're listening to The Rhythm of Rebellion by Taina Asili. Janita Benali is one half of the brother and sister music duo Sihasen. They are multi-award-winning artists from the Diné or Navajo Nation in Northern Arizona and create an explosive duo of bass, drums, and vocals with a traditional Navajo backbone bridging folk, rock, pop, and punk. Hi, Janita. Yat A, I'm so excited to be here. You know, one of the things that I love about you as an artist is that you have such a long, rich, and profound history in making music for social change. Can you tell us a little bit about that history? Well, growing up, I never saw a distinction. I never saw differences between art and life. And I grew up going to protests. I grew up at the hems of my grandmother's skirts carrying protest banners and hearing them speak about the injustices that our people, the Diné, were facing because of forced relocation due to the coal mine that was encroaching upon our land and claiming it as their own and removing over 10,000 of our Diné people to access coal. I learned from a very early age the power of voice from my father being a traditional medicine man and sitting in with him and helping to do singings, which are ceremonies, but in our traditional way, we say singing. And so I recognize the power of voice to heal. I recognize the power of voice to bring awareness from my grandmothers. I recognize the power of voice through art, through my mother, Berta Benali, who is a folk singer and songwriter. So it's always been something that's ingrained with me. When my brothers and I were growing up, we played with each other. Like we either we all wanted to like skateboard together or we wanted to be ninjas together or we wanted to jump out of trees together. And finally, we started a band together. And we realized that utilizing our voices to create music that could hopefully create a positive impact That was paramount for us. We've been facing so many injustices, you know, the prejudice and the discrimination because we have brown skin, the discrimination because we are indigenous Americans, the discrimination because people tell us to go back to the reservation, not realizing that they were on our traditional homelands that we were had been removed from, not realizing the history. So music became that kind of creative outlet for us. We thought that if we could make songs about these injustices that were happening, maybe that would open people's eyes. And that was with our band Blackfire. And so we were a justifiably angry punk band for 21 years. Wow. After 21 years of playing in Blackfire, a lot changed in my life where I became a parent 
I unsuccessfully sued the federal government with the Save the Peaks Coalition to stop the use of reclaimed wastewater that was laden with endocrine disruptors from being utilized on the Holy Mountain. We lost. It was really difficult. And at that same time, there was a rash of youth suicides on the reservation. In one community, there were 11 youth who tried to commit suicide, the youngest being nine. And it broke me. And so at that point, I hit this kind of rock bottom in my life. And that's when I decided I can't be angry anymore. So what happens next? Where do I go? Who am I without my anger? In what ways can music offer healing to not only ourselves as artists, but in our world? Growing up traditionally um, with a Dine Hatathli as a father, which is a Navajo medicine man, Dine, I really felt the power of healing through voice. Having that deep understanding, that kind of foundational understanding of how music is medicine, how music is healing. I find that music is this incredible vehicle that we can all relate to. When we are in our mama's wombs, we hear this incredible drumbeat, her heartbeat. We get birthed into the world and we gravitate towards music, towards that rhythm. It makes us move. It makes us feel. It makes us understand particular things about ourselves that we may not yet understand because it, it transcends language. It transcends borders and boundaries. It's that universal heartbeat that we, we grew with. So beautifully put. I also know about the justice healing work that you're doing in your community. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that. Absolutely, thank you. So a friend of mine once said, by any creative means possible, and that feels like it's become a personal motto. <laughs> and um, by any creative means possible, for me has translated into doing a youth radio show called Indigenous Youth Nation, where we empower youth to learn about their culture. When the media finally started acknowledging all of the mass child grave sites at boarding schools in Canada, but also here in the United States, people were so overwhelmed by how could this be happening? You know, they, they, it was like, it was, it was, um, it's actually, I actually find myself getting really tongue tied by the emotional component of the injustices that the children of boarding schools, um, underwent. So it makes it hard for me to talk about, which was why I knew that I needed to do something to help heal. Wow. Yeah. It gets really hard for me to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Which is why um, I created a radio show to celebrate youth culture, youth indigenous culture, mm. to celebrate that after all 
that our people have been through, we still exist. We still have language that exists. We still have culture that exists. But how do we help the next generations to become excited about it? During the boarding school era, there was so much shame that survivors um, lived with and that they still live with for being indigenous, just for being indigenous, for the things that they experienced, for the things that they saw, for the um, for the traumas that they experienced just because they were an indigenous child. They were taken from their homes. They were taken from their communities, their families, and um, told to never go back to their old blanket. They were rotated between three different religions. They were beaten when they spoke their language. Um, they were starved. They you know, they there were so many atrocities committed against these children that um, that I wanted to do something maybe subconsciously, I don't know, to kind of heal the wounds that I intergenerationally feel. Um, mm. The wounds that I know so many indigenous communities feel. And so that's where Indigenous Youth Nation came about is because we really want to inspire youth to um, to feel empowered about their culture. You know, I, I really admire you in your ability to balance all of this work. And I'm, I'm sure you have your own struggles and, and journeys with that. Uh, I was wondering if you could share a couple of important teachings that you've learned in your craft that you would want to impart on that next generation of culture creators? For me, um, there's two things that are, that are incredibly important is be authentically who you are because we want to celebrate you. We want to hear your story through whatever art that is that you're making. We want to just have that little window to experience and to celebrate your resilience as a human being. Thanks so much, Janita. All right, thank you. Listen to the full episode of this podcast at therhythmofrebellion.com. Thanks for listening. Taina Seeley, that's the series, uh, The Rhythm of Rebellion, which every time, every week at this time, you can hear an interview. Find the interview from last week with Martha Redbone on our website. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. We thank all of our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Mark Dunley, Bria Barthel, Dulcinea Diggs, Taina Asili, and Moses Nagel, who I should give credit, he edited the Rhythm of Rebellion uh, story. And we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening.